welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Big Bucks edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, July 31st. The provincial scene has quieted down this week, but there's still plenty to talk about. It's been a crazy week on the markets, with oil flirting with new lows and rumors it can tumble even further. Prime Minister Stephen Harper is expected to call an election sometime this weekend, and in a dark, dank room somewhere, advisors and experts are testing one-liners for the first federal leaders' debate. We'll talk about all that, plus Transalta's battle with the Alberta Utilities Commission over alleged attempts to drive up electricity prices. As always, I promise we'll do our best for you, our ratepayers. Here in the studio, before they've reached super peak hours, we have city columnist <laughs> Paula Simons. I am always super peak, Brent. <laughs> Business columnist Gary Lamphere. Visiting from a dark, dank room somewhere. <laughs> and for the second consecutive week, we've got web editor slash man about town, Stuart Thompson. Hello. You all look fantastic. Thanks, you look Brent. marvelous. <laughs> Uh, let's start with Gary. We, we've had quite the week in the markets. On Monday, you described it as carnage, a full-blown rout, a clobbering. Um, things have bounced back a little bit since then, but uh, what's going on and what could be the fallout? Well, put it this way. It's so ugly, I am hiding our RRSP statements from my wife so she doesn't <laughs> see them. It's all red ink. Uh, it's been pretty brutal, actually. Um, Toronto's main index, main equity index for people who follow these things, it's way underwater uh, over the last year. It was, uh, I think, down to the tune of almost 11%, which in the markets is referred to as correction territory. If it drops 20% below the high, you're talking uh, full-blown bear market. We're not there yet, but it's pretty ugly. Oil and gas has really led to the downside, is uh, no surprise here in Alberta. Oil prices, as we speak, are around 48 bucks a barrel, uh, peaked last year at 107. We've had a raft of additional layoff announcements this week, Sonova, Shell, this goes on and on. It's going to go on some more through the last half of the year. It's hitting consumers. Uh, TransUnion, one of the credit agencies or bureaus, put out a report this week predicting that there will be a big jump in delinquency levels, i.e. people who are not up to date on their, their loan repayments for everything from cars to credit cards, uh, mortgages, you name it. So this is a tough patch, and we're going to go through tougher times in the next six months, and the markets are reflecting that. You said on, in your Monday column you spoke with Joseph Schachter, um, who thinks uh, an energy analyst who thinks oil could go even further, 41, He does, 42. and I give Joe credit because, uh, I don't know if the credit's the right word, but he's certainly been one of the few who has been directionally accurate on oil prices over the last 18 months. A lot of high-profile people have been dead wrong on uh, oil prices. Uh, he's been right. Beginning last June, June of 2014, when oil prices were peaking, he said, nope, this is not sustainable. We're going to see a oil price decline here soon. He was right on the money, and he has been consistently bearish throughout the last 15 months. And uh, as you mentioned, when I spoke to him most recently, he's again calling for further declines. He sees oil finally washing out in the low 40s sometime between October and December of this year. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. So Gary, to, so. I mean, when, when you were on talking about oil prices a couple of weeks ago, you mm -hmm. talked about the impact of Saudi Arabian policies and Saudi Arabia trying to basically starve out right. uh, North Dakota production. To what extent is this still being driven by Saudi policy and to what extent has it become its own, mm -hmm. you know, has it gotten so much momentum it's just running downhill on its own? Uh, Saudis are huge uh, players internationally and very influential. And now we've got the prospect of Iran coming back on the market, which is going to further add to the glut. On the U.S. side, production is peaking. There are signs that it's starting to decline in some areas of the shale oil plays in the U.S. 
uh, and that will grind lower over the next year. That's part of the reason why Joseph Schachter thinks that we're near a bottom on oil prices, and we'll start to see declines, meaningful declines in U.S. production in 2016 and 17. And further out, he's, he's you know, reasonably bullish uh, that three years from now we'll be back to the 80s or thereabouts. And there are, there are others who see that as well. But this is a new era for oil prices, and uh, costs are paramount. You know, you got to get your costs down or you can't survive. Uh, some of these companies are going to go bust before this is over, I'm sure. So it's, uh, it's not a pretty time in Alberta. So we've talked a lot in the past few months about how these dismal oil prices are going to make it tough for the province to function, fuel royalties and, and less corporate taxes. But you hinted at, aside from the, from the oil companies, uh, what can they do to drive down production costs? I mean, there aren't any quick fixes. The, the, the quick fix is obviously laying people off, which is what they're doing. But aside from that, the, there really needs to be a really hard, thorough look at technology, technological solutions, how to apply them. And I, and I think as much as the, you know, that has been on, under discussion for years and years and years, you know, I frankly think the oil and gas companies have not really embraced it uh, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, they report quarter to quarter. They live in a short-term world, right? So there's that kind of logjam that has precluded the kind of technological innovation, or at least slowed it. And um, there's also a lot of really innovative junior companies that uh, have some interesting stuff on the go, but they themselves have said that it's tough to get in the door with these big companies uh, for those reasons, you know, that they're reluctant to take on risk that could affect quarterly earnings, quarterly numbers, and now we're in this terrible rough patch. I think there's kind of a silver lining to the rough patch, and that is that I think finally these companies are going to be forced to face the fact that to compete and survive, they're going to have to do some innovative things. And uh, there are, in fact, some people led by the a former uh, CEO of AIMCO who are uh, informally, very quietly, getting together and discussing some of these issues. There are academics involved. And um, I think they're trying to put it on the radar, and I think they're making a little bit of headway. Uh, some doors are opening that perhaps were closed a couple of years ago. So. Uh, Knock on wood, you know, maybe they'll make some progress. I'll tell you, the other junior company that's going to have to innovate would be your Alberta NDP government because, (laughs) um, you know, Joe Cece gave an interview to the Calgary Sun this week in which he said, you know, they're going to be steady as they go. They're going to live up to their commitments. They're not going to attack core services. This is going to be some very brutal times ahead. And I mean, none of this is Rachel Notley's fault, but she is going to carry the can if the economy here really goes into a tailspin. Well, it's interesting to think of of what it might mean for the federal government um, coming into an an election territory. Do they face the same kind of pressure that the NDP face, or are they going to get sort of let off the hook a little bit? I think that's the question that even they don't know. I think people in the PMO or working for the Conservative Party are wondering, is this a good thing if things are kind of bad, or is it a bad thing for us? The Prime Minister only really does a a little bit that affects the economy. And I think we kind of talk about, did Stephen Harper handle the economy well? And there's really only so much he can do. But after the 08 election, they based their entire brand around the economy and how they handled with that, how they handled that and all that infrastructure spending and the stimulus spending. That was what they based their whole party's brand around. So when it gets bad, I think you then have to deal with that. You have to say... If the good times were on us, then the bad times are now on us. So I think uh, Bruce Anderson wrote a pretty good piece in The Globe, I think yesterday, saying this is uh, there's sort of a fine line here where if things are so bad that people start to lose hope, that if things get really bad and they start to throw their hands up and say, we just need to change, that's bad for Stephen Harper. But if things are bad where you're uncertain and you think, 
if we stick with the guy who seems to kind of know what he's doing, maybe there's something to that. I think that may be what they're hoping for. And as long as the perception is this is a global downturn, this is an oil downturn, this is something we don't really have any control over, but we want the guy who's kind of steady running things at the time. And then the other question, too, is they're running around spending all this money. I wonder how that's going to be perceived by the electorate who's worried about finances and worried about their own budgets. I wonder if they're going to think, well, this is great. We're getting money for LRT. Well, we're this not is, getting money this for is a LRT. Little, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> if you're in Calgary, you might think <laughs> uh, this is great. Or you might think these guys are spending a lot of money. I don't know about that. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays. I don't know the answer, but it's the big question I think even the liberals, high-level liberals, NDP and Tories are wondering about right now. So who's who's got a good message to sell next week at the in the debate about economy? Who do you think has a potential to upseat the conservatives. Well, you know, here's the irony. I don't think any of them has a very good message on the economy. It's one thing to say, you know, you dance with the guy what brung you, and in times of uncertainty, you stick with what you know. There are other things beyond the price of oil for which he has to carry some responsibility. And the fact that his government seems to be sticking its fingers in its collective ears and saying, there's no recession, <laughs> makes them look foolish. But I'm not sure that voters are going to look to either Thomas Mulcair or Justin Trudeau as the guy with the economic answer. It's funny, too. The last poll I saw had Thomas Mulcair as the number one guy for the economy and Stephen Harper in third. And who knows what that means? Like, this could mean that maybe people are kind of tired of what's going on in the country. And Stephen Harper is the guy they're going to pin that on. But then when it comes time to a campaign, when you really start thinking about these things, I think uncertainty does come into it, and that's going to hurt Mulcair a little bit. Well, it's interesting. Kelly McCarland had a really interesting column this week about the kind of cognitive dissonance people have about Thomas Mulcair. Thomas Mulcair comes across as a smart, competent, strong guy. He looks like a he looks like a leader. Except he's got a beard. But but, but, <laughs> but, but the policies, you know, pe- people seem to like the Mulcairness of him more than what the actual platform stands for. I agree. He is a smart fellow, no doubt, and he conveys a certain yeah, authoritativeness he, 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 he and all he that. But, but when it comes to the economy, I just I don't know where the guy is coming from. Uh, he was the guy two years ago, if we all recall, who talked about the evils of Dutch disease and how it was destroying manufacturing. We've got a Canadian dollar at 76 cents, for God's sake. <laughs> and manufacturing is sputtering. It's still not contributing to the recovery in the way that people had hoped. I looked at uh, lumber this week, of all things. It was supposed to be one of the few bright lights in the Canadian economy. Guess what? It's not doing so great either. The lumber stocks are all selling off. Why is that? Because Canadian lumber companies are building and buying plants in the United States. They're offshoring or off nationalizing their lumber production and uh, so we're not getting the kind of oomph that you usually get in a recovery the job creation that you usually get in a recovery mills are closing in BC they're not opening so it's not just oil the right across the economy right now there are very few engines that are working they're all sputtering manufacturing forestry oil and gas mining is in the tank it's very tough to see where this economy is going to go looking ahead. I wish I could sound more optimistic about it, but I think there are really significant global forces at play that are really hammering the Canadian economy from coast to coast. Harper's been trying to campaign on, you know, here's money. We're going to save you from the evil of daycare. We're going to save you from the evil of ISIS. We're going to save you from the evil of, you know, I mean, he, you know, he's going to save you from various evils, but not a lot of talk about, you know, how he's going to restart the economy. And, and Trudeau seems to have 
I don't know. It's like he's gone radio silent in the last couple of weeks. I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe he's in seclusion building up for some giant, you know. Next Thursday. Revenants <laughs> next Thursday. I don't know. But it's, it is a really peculiar thing, as Gary says. I mean, up until now, I, I don't think anybody over this nice hot summer has wanted to think very hard about the economy. The narrative of this election campaign could really change sharply over what's going to be seemingly a very long campaign. Paula was mentioning the uh, spending that the Tories have been doing um, <laughs> and some of these announcements. And I'm quite interested on your take, you know, uh, d- down the road on the QE2, half a billion dollars for a ring road and uh, another billion and a half for LRT. Jason Kenney said, this is not a government that believes in pork barrel politics. Is this a government that believes in pork barrel politics? Of course it is. It's the <laughs> most hypocritical thing ever. And, you know, I don't believe in pork barrel politics, but but... It's one thing to dis- to decry pork barrel politics. It gets hard when you're the little piggy that got none. I mean, <laughs> yesterday, Jason Kenney gave Calgary half a billion dollars for the ring road. And today, Ronna Ambrose gave Edmonton half a million dollars to fix up the midway at Fort Edmonton. Sure, surely not half a billion to fix up the fort. <laughs> no, but... It's going to be know, a great midway. Uh, <laughs> Maybe if we were better at building LRTs, we'd get some money for it. Yeah. Maybe it's a punishment. Oh, yeah, because Toronto is so good at <laughs> building true. LRTs. I mean, okay, Calgary builds a better LRT system than we do, but we build a better ring road. I mean, yeah, come true. on. I mean, So why do you think that is? Is it, Have the Tories written off Edmonton? Well, I have a theory about this in general, too. Uh, I When I was in journalism school, I worked on a story with Glenn McGregor and Steve Marr on the 08-09 stimulus funding, or in the 09 budget. And they were doing a story about how much money was going into different ridings. And their thesis was more money is going into Tory ridings. And that turned out to be true, which I think is just because these guys were all lobbying for their ridings. Um, What they didn't look at, and which I realized two years later and had sort of an epiphany, was maybe it's not about the money. So I checked out some swing ridings and then like Vaughn at the time, that's Fantino's riding at the time, he was gunning for that. And I checked the amount of projects in Vaughn, it was over 100. The average was like 30 and Vaughn was like number one by far. I came to realize these guys, it wasn't about the money. It was about putting a bunch of projects in a certain riding. You get all those signs, you get all those ribbon cuttings. It doesn't matter if it's half a million or if it's 30 million or if it's 100 million, you get in front of cameras in front of the local newspaper. There was over, I think there was a hundred announcements yesterday across the country. These are just little announcements that get you in, usually on the front page of the local weekly. And I think that's more the strategy than the money. It's probably nice for Calgary. They had that project on the table, but I don't think it's a deliberate scorning of Edmonton. I think they're just getting all, and because Edmonton, you think there's probably a few writings here they're a little worried about. I think maybe what they're looking for is just get Rana in front of the cameras. If it's half a million, if it's 50 million, who cares? Oh, the other thing, too, is do people vote based on that? I, and that's, I think, the big question is, are people actually saying, well, oh, cool, we got a billion dollars for the LRT. I'm going to vote for these guys. I don't necessarily know if that's true. And the stimulus funding made me think if you're in Toronto and they're putting construction projects all over the city, maybe they're just angering people because they keep seeing these Government of Canada signs while they're stuck in traffic. And <laughs> I think it's a good question because these things, I don't think people, I don't think people necessarily have the logic that we think they do sometimes. Given all this election talk, I don't want to gloss over uh, what's happened here in Alberta this week with Transalta. Earlier this week, uh, the Utilities Commission accused the company of driving up electricity prices by uh, performing some maintenance at, you know, some peak hours. But 
The damage is estimated at, at about $100 million for small and mid-sized business businesses. That's about 2000 to 5000 uh, according to one estimate, at least. And Capital Power says it paid $10 million extra. Were you surprised at this? And uh, what do you think it says about TransAlta? Surprised, yes. And perhaps even a little more surprised that they publicly admitted on their conference call this week that they did uh, the financial calculations as they were making this decision, so we're quite aware of how it would impact their profitability, which impacted quite positively, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, rather self-serving. You know, the CEO on that conference call stoutly defended, uh, you know, moves by the company and uh, in language that I found pretty obtuse and, you know, incomprehensible. And frankly, I'm not intimately acquainted with this issue, so I... Uh, you know, I can't render black or white judgment here, but, uh, you know, I found her uh, explanation kind of confusing. She c- claims that they complied with the rules. Perhaps they did. It sounds like a lawyer's answer to me. So, you know, I don't know where this goes, but I think it's a real black eye on the company. And um, black eyes tend to stick with companies I found over the years after reporting on business for a lot of years. Companies that, that do questionable things, things that might be regarded by people as unethical, it's hard to escape that once you've done it. So we'll see where this fallout comes, but their stock price is really in the tank as well. That's another, perhaps that's another factor here in the game. I don't know, but pretty embarrassing to say the least because for the it, company. I mean, this, this is a multifold problem for them. I mean, according to the report, not only were they gaming the prices and insider trading to benefit from their gaming of the prices, but they took production offline at super peak times that actually put the grid at risk. The other thing, of course, is that the people who got mostly done over by this uh, weren't consumers like you and me. They were other companies. And, you know, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, with companies not paying their income taxes. You do not create a business-friendly environment by letting a handful of oligarchs benefit at the expense of other business. The opposition leaders, of course, uh, raised, uh, raised concerns and said, uh, we need to tighten the rules. Uh, do, do, you, do you have any confidence that this will happen? Or is this is this something that's sort of an inevitable consequence of a highly deregulated system? Well, deregulation doesn't mean no regulation. And, you know, I, if there's ever going to be a government that's going to have the social <laughs> license to, to put the boots to Transalta, it's presumably Rachel Notley's NDP government in its remaining honeymoon months at a time that you're coming right off this report. But I think the other thing a lot of people want to know is, what's the penalty? Because I I flipped to page 187 of the report to see, okay, what are they going to do to Transelta? Yeah, the analogy that uh, I think of when we talk about this is uh, the securities regulators in this country. And, you know, there's a long history in this country of securities infractions where the, the wrongdoer, uh, basically lined his or her pockets, and the penalty was like a pittance. It was a slap on the wrist. So it actually was an incentive to do wrong. Let's hope uh, it doesn't come to that in this case. Let's hope that the penalty is hefty enough that it not only eradicates whatever profit they made off this, but uh, they pay a, a multiple of that in penalties so that it's a clear disincentive to the rest of the market. I've heard in some of the reports a million dollars a day, so up to $30 million, but they were floating the number $10 million as to what they theoretically could pay back. But which, which is absurd. It's a, it's a tiny fraction of the profit that they made. Yeah. Mm. 
It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Every week we, we share something we've enjoyed often, but not always with a political connection. Uh, so Paula, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have a somewhat unusual suggestion because I was going to recommend a, a couple of pieces by Paul Ferry, who's a political science professor at the University of Calgary. But then I thought, really? What Paul Ferry does brilliantly is have a great Twitter feed, uh, which is political without being hyper-partisan. And so rather than recommending a Paul Ferry article, I'm going to suggest that uh, if you're on Twitter, that uh, that you should be following uh, Paul Ferry and his Twitter handle is almost as clever as mine. Uh, mine is politics. His is Pauli Sci, mm. uh, spelled P-A-U-L-I-S-C-I. Mine is a book, and I forgot to write down the name of the author, so sorry to the anonymous author of this book. The book is called The Secret History of the Mongol Queens. Uh, it's about the feminist tendencies of Genghis Khan. Um, it's really interesting. He did kill a lot of women, but <laughs> Mongol women got off all right. <laughs> and actually, his daughters ran substantial parts of his empire. Uh, it's definitely worth a read. And if you want the other side of the story, which I also recommend getting into, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History did a, a five-part piece called wrath of the cons on the mongols uh so uh it's worth a listen it's about eight hours of podcast but it's definitely worth it holy smokes <laughs> all right from uh, hell's heart he strikes at thee. <laughs> <laughs> gary what do you what do you have well at the risk of sounding like like a super nerd here um the, i read a really fascinating uh study fascinating to me anyway uh by the pew research center this week and it was on the uh, rate of household formation sort of an economic term but how many millennials are actually, you know, forming households, buying homes, and uh, setting up households since the recession? And all these years later, I mean, we're talking six years later now, the rates have not picked up at all in the United States. It kind of blew me away that there are as many 20 and even 30-somethings living with mom and dad in the basement now as there were in 2009. So, I mean, it really speaks to the fact that th this generation in the U in the U.S. in particular is really having a tough time getting going and um, economically. And uh, while the jobless rate among the young apparently has fallen quite a bit in the U.S. in the last year or two, it's, it's not translated into sort of economic power and the ability to, you know, stand on your own two feet, find your own place, buy it, and live independently. So kind of uh, distressing. Yeah, I wish I could say something happy this week. I feel like I'm <laughs> yeah. like a complete downer here. But American moms stop doing their laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's surely, surely that's the root. Don't incentivize them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Trans Alta. If you keep if you keep doing their laundry and packing their lunches, <laughs> then they never learn. Um, my pick this week is from McLean's, where uh, Scott Reed, former advisor for Paul, Prime Minister Paul Martin, uh, gives a great analysis of what happens in the preparation before a, a national televised debate. And uh, there's judos and there's Sunday mock sessions. There's all this particular terminology. Um, but if that's not, not enough for you, his McLean's colleague, Scott Festchuk, skewers leaders in a highly, highly humorous, uh, slightly less serious companion piece. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or on Edmonton Journal SoundCloud. The show appears most Fridays and can be found on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter, except for Gary, I think. I would like to take on all comers in the comment section. Check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Gary, and Stuart, for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time. We'll be back to talking about whether we're going to move out of the basement or not. <laughs> That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening. Thank you.